Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Clay, you have a one-on-one conversation with the author Derek Baxter about his new book, In Pursuit of Jefferson. Derek Baxter is a UVA alum. He's a lawyer in Fairfax, Virginia, and he got it into his head that he would like to follow Jefferson through England, through the Low Countries, through Germany, through France, and through Italy. He took his family. He spent a number of years at it and has written a book about that attempt to understand something more about Jefferson by following in his European footsteps. This is a conversation you were made to have, sir. Oh, my. I love this. Of course, I've done some of this myself and will be doing more, but he really got into it. So he found a letter that Jefferson had written to two young men about how to travel in Europe, and then he followed Jefferson's itinerary as strictly as he possibly could. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do?, our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events, history, with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now, and good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson is uh, an unfortunate individual who has never had the chance to visit France. I always am interested to hear from you, sir, why it was that you so appreciated that nation. Well, France is the most civilized nation in the world in my time. France had helped us win the War of Independence by giving us aid, both financial and military. Think of young Lafayette, for example, or the way that the French fleet bottled up Cornwallis at Yorktown. France was famous for the books and the artistry of the Enlightenment. People like Rousseau, and Voltaire and Dolbach and Condorcet, and getting the chance in midlife to go there and spend five years in the cultural capital of the world, uh, meeting some of these people um, and enjoying salons and the great gardens of Paris, the music, the, the art, people like Jacques-Louis David, the painter, or Udon, the sculptor. Uh, it was a world that I had never had a chance to see in the United States, not even in our cultural capital, Philadelphia, but certainly not in my own Virginia. And so the chance to serve my country, but also to embed myself in this glittering world of high culture was an irresistible magnet to me. Sir, there's a very famous quote attributed to you. I can't remember it exactly. Perhaps you could help me with it. It's something about every man's first nation. Well, every man's first nation is his own. But every rational man's second nation must be France. Yes, of course. And more than England, you know, our culture is born in the Anglo-Saxon world. You know, we come out of the Magna Carta and the British Bill of Rights and the British Civil War. And our literature goes to Chaucer and then Shakespeare and Dr. Johnson and Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift. That's our cultural inheritance. But France is so much more civilized than England. And really, France has carried the art of civility to the highest possible pitch. I said, you could spend your entire life in in France and never hear a single rude remark. Well, nobody could say that of John Bull's England. You traveled outside of France when you were there. You, You visited at least six other countries that I know of. And yet, I've always thought of you as a bit of a homebody. I mean, you loved Monticello. At the risk of using too simplistic a word, did you get homesick for Virginia, sir? Oh, of course, because of the happiness of America. 
France, there was no happiness. 19 million of, of, of her 20 million people lived in the most extraordinary poverty. The class hierarchies were appalling. The way the aristocrats lorded it over peasants was uh, an offense to the human project. Their monarchical system, their taxation system, their superstition, the ignorance of the masses, the way that uh, the priests were keeping people locked into a sort of a, a medieval worldview. All of these things uh, were upsetting to a lover of liberty. And of course, I miss the mountains of Virginia and my own dear Monticello, but I knew I was only going to be there once in Europe. And I knew that if I didn't take advantage of some opportunities to travel, that I would be making a, a terrible mistake. And so I always was traveling for a diplomatic purpose, but I added on some more general observations of life in Europe with the hope that that would help me understand what we needed to do to maintain public liberty and public happiness in our own country. Well, finally, Mr. Jefferson, would you encourage Americans of my time to go abroad and experience other cultures? Absolutely. And you, you can do it so much more easily than I could. So my daughter and I left Boston, I think on July 5th, 1784. It took 19 days to cross the Atlantic. We were living in essentially a yacht. Our chambers were so small, we had to crawl into them. You couldn't stand up to get into the rooms where we were staying. We had to bring our own food if we wanted to eat in anything like um, happiness. But that was the beginning of it. Then we had to cross the English Channel. We had to wander through France being cheated by guides and so on all along the way. You live in an age of spectacular ease of travel, and you should all take advantage of it if you can. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. Day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation about President Thomas Jefferson. And this week it is entirely about Jefferson, about President Jefferson and France. I'm your host, David Swenson, joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And Clay, this week you had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the author, Derek Baxter. In March, his book, In Pursuit of Jefferson, traveling through Europe with the most perplexing founding father. I must read this book, particularly after listening to your conversation. This must have been one you really enjoyed. I'm taking a, a group of people to Jefferson's France in the fall, and I've done it once before. And so when I saw this title, I have one of those Google things that alerts you to anything on a certain subject. And so here it came, and I thought, okay, I ordered the book immediately. I got in touch with Derek Baxter. He was quite willing to be interviewed. And I read the book, which I love, a uh, fascinating account of, of his family's travel. So he is a lawyer. He lives in Fairfax, Virginia. His wife, Liana, and, and, and their children, Miranda and Nicholas, were with him on much of, of these European travels. And he tried to go into the exact footsteps of Thomas Jefferson and see what Jefferson saw and try to make sense of not only Jefferson by way of that travel, but 
of how the European world reshaped Jefferson's thinking during his five years there. So it was a, a great read, and he it turned out to be a very fascinating interview. I'm excited to, to share this interview with our listeners. Shall we go to it now, sir? This is Derek Baxter in pursuit of Jefferson traveling through Europe with the most perplexing founding father. I'm excited to have this chance to interview you. I'm a Jefferson scholar, so I'm also fascinated by the book for other reasons, and I'm planning I'm going to Milan in November, oh. much the same way you were, although I'm adding the uh, Last Supper to my list of things I must see before they stop showing it all together. Absolutely. And, and Clay, I should start by saying, yeah, I've long followed your career and uh, read and listened to your stuff. And I actually heard you speak at Monticello at the at the Heritage Harvest Festival some years back right. um, on farmers. Yes, I think we, we might have even met briefly. Uh, Briefly then. So yeah, I've always been a big admirer. So it's, uh, I don't know who should be interviewing whom, but I'm definitely, uh, definitely happy to talk with you. Well, I know your story. In fourth grade, you portrayed Jefferson in a musical. That's right. Since you've never gotten them out of your system. You're having a quiet career, you have a family, and you decide to do this sort of crazy madcap journey. So what possessed you to do this? I think, as you said, I was looking for something more. I was pushing 40 at the time, which actually now seems a little young, but at the time, you know, it's you know, pushing 40, you know, what, what else are you going to do with your life? I wanted to, you know, I had some dreams of, of travel, which I had always loved, and I wanted to reconnect with history and just, just a lot of those subjects out there. And Jefferson, as I wrote about in the book, I mean, Jefferson has always been kind of a, I mean, somebody I've, I've admired for many reasons and coming across his guide, you know, it's just very revelatory. It's like, well, here's something that, I mean, this is what, this is what Jefferson wanted people to do back then. And it's what you could still do today. So it was, yeah, it was madcap. I like that word. It was, you know, I, I guess it was, uh, it was putting myself out there, but I thought this, this could just be a, a really great challenge and see what comes of it. You're married and have a family, but as you know, Jefferson says traveling alone is the way to really ingest Europe. Yeah. How did you negotiate that issue? That's interesting. Yeah, I did. I did some of the trips by myself and some with the family, the majority with the family. But I did a couple of uh, a couple of side trips off by myself. And that does give you the chance to to meet people easier, I think, if you're traveling alone. But I will say traveling with with other people, with close people, I think is also interesting because you can see not just how you're processing all these events, but how everybody is. And people saw things in my family in, in very different ways. Were there uh, Chevy Chase family vacations <laughs> where they all just wanted to wring your neck? The biggest would have been in England, where uh, I decided I wanted to see all 19 gardens that, that Jefferson visited. Um, I really, at the end of the day, I really kind of focused on about three or four or five of them in the book, but we went to all 19, not all of them are still there even. And that was kind of the Chevy Chase moment, I guess, where we were driving all around and sometimes, and it was, it was hard to find some of these, you know, I was looking at old maps and looking and, you know, we'd show up to a couple of these places and they would just be like a scraggly meadow or there'd be a little vestige of a garden that's now part of a prep school or something like that which I got a lot of grief for after like all that work or one, the first one we, was a golf course. It wasn't even really a garden anymore. So, so yes, there was lots of different opinions about how useful that trip was. But for, for me, I really appreciate it because 
Some of them are obviously amazingly pre preserved. Some are, you know, some of the most famous gardens in the world. So contrasting those with other gardens, which might have been very impressive in Jefferson's time, and now there's almost nothing there, also I think was meaningful to me just to see kind of the passage of time and, and how much work you have to put into preserving something. So I think that was worth it. So if you went to all 19, I've been to three or four mm -hmm. in my lifetime, and you might be the only Jeffersonian <laughs> who's done this. That's a that's a huge quest. It was it was quite a quest, and some of them were hard. Uh, one was owned by the BBC, Caversham, which which I was able, and I think they've sold it since I've been there. So that was really cool because it was hardly. Uh, they're not open for visitors, maybe once a year or something like that. But I got one of the radio hosts. I just found his email and emailed him. And he was friendly and just walked around. And he didn't know much about the garden either. He was just he was just enjoying the trips. I mean, so there were some nice, very quiet moments like that for a few of the gardens. Or I write about this. Uh, the Lisos near Birmingham also is a garden, but a pretty modest one. But But again, that we loved. And part of it for me was just I couldn't believe that. Yes, that I was doing something that Jefferson, he did every one of those things. And so I think that was one of the fun parts of the trip for me. I never would have gone to the Lisos and to Reading and, you know, places like that, too, that just got me off the beaten track. And just, you know, that I think that's one of the joys of travel. If you have a purpose, if you have a reason to going for going somewhere, uh, it doesn't have to be following Jefferson. But just whatever the reason, you know, you've, you've set up, it can just make it that more meaningful. But, you know, he was carrying what Waitley's. English gardens yeah. with him and 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 with his beautiful little minuscule hand writing in notes well the it's no it's no longer laid out this way they've changed this the, this is not particularly aesthetically pleasing and he's I mean Adams is probably just sputtering <laughs> what are we doing here I mean how many gardens are enough and Jefferson can't get enough of it so when yeah. you when you're doing this how does it help you think about Jefferson he saw more than he was ever going to be able yeah. to accomplish here. Well, I like I like what you said about Jefferson and Adams. They're different takes, right? Adams and he and Adams didn't quite go to all nineteen, but he went to a bunch of them. And right for him, he's just like exactly why are we doing this? And he just was making fun of some of the owners. Jefferson was just very practical. He's such an interesting take on his travel because he he, he could he was certainly capable of, and sometimes wrote these very lyrical descriptions of what he saw. But most of the time, it's just jotting down the notes like here's. You know, this temple looks good. You know, you know, the trees are here. The pond is here because in, in his mind, he's thinking about uh, how he might recreate like what's in it. You know, what's in it for him and what's in it for other Americans like him who might want to do landscaping back home. But, yeah, he took he took a lot of ideas. I mean, he had, he, he had a lot of this from book learning. Obviously, he had lately he had even thought about landscaping before he went to Europe. But I think I think he took back some ideas like the one for the ornamented farm, the Fair Monet, which, which he didn't fully put into practice. He probably also had ideas about the follies that he saw and kind of how, how, he, would, how he would combine everything and try to tell a story. And he actually, he didn't even wait till get back home. He started uh, in the Hotel Longjac, he started in the garden behind it. He started, uh, well, at least he sketched out plans to redesign his garden there. He just had three quarters of an acre, but he, he wanted to just do as much as he can with whatever he he had in front of him. So I have to think that seeing all these in purpose in 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 uh, in person and rating them and figuring out which gardens he liked, you know, fed into um, the vision he eventually had. So he, I mean, he he brings these 
he brings a ton of stuff back with him, this gigantic shopping spree that he went on, which is um, sort of appalling when you consider that he didn't really have any money to pay for all that. He brings back architectural thought, and that has a gigantic influence in the course of American history. He brings back an understanding of wine and how the wine business works and how you can ship wines and so on. And that has a significant influence in American history. Gardening was a little less so because, and he admits we're not quite there yet. We don't have enough wealth. We don't have enough luxury to, to, um, to incorporate these ideas, but, but he certainly wanted this kind of landscape aesthetic to be part of the American world too, didn't he? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It wasn't fully realized. Um, but, but he, uh, he, he wrote in his guide and hence to Americans traveling in Europe, he wrote that gardening of the various arts is one that America actually could, could achieve quicker than, you know, uh, doing fine paintings, you know, like you would see the old masters doing um, because, because they have the plants. And he said, in fact, we've got the gardens. You just have to cut out the super abundant plants and the garden will emerge. Of course, it's a lot of work. And it was the work was being done in the South by enslaved people for sure. Uh, but he did want this aesthetic and he had, I think, part of the aesthetic he he brought back. And, and it, I think he it, it might have been surprising for him to see uh, plants like the tulip poplar from Virginia uh, thriving in England and being part of the English garden, because they also the English gardens were putting on a show. They weren't they looked wild and it, lo it was nature, but it was all very composed. So I think he took back some of these ideas and became very excited about which you can still see some of this. At Monticello today, he had his roundabout paths, which he had started before he went to Europe, but he developed more afterwards. Uh, he had he had the contrast, which which Margaret Bayard Smith, a visitor, I think in, in about 1809 or so, she noted that when she when you went up the the in the carriage to Monticello, who was going through the wild, uh, the forest was 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 savage. She put it, um, and then you emerged and you saw hoarded fields and meadows. So that was part of, and then and you see the mountains. And so and I think that's kind of the message that Jefferson was trying to show in, a, in part that we can tame wilderness, that we have wilderness, that we should be proud of nature in America, but also that we can look to the West and we can tame the West. And, you know, he had kind of an idea of the story he wanted to to tell, but ultimately, and, and he was telling, you know, other founders did as well with their gardens, but I think Monticello was, uh, was such an interesting concept, especially being on the top of the mountain, which nobody else did. But again, he didn't fully realize this, this vision. I think he would have liked to have done even more with his landscaping. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a one-on-one -on -one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and the author, Derek Baxter. We need to take a break, but we'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week's special one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and Derek Baxter. Derek talking about his new book, In Pursuit of Jefferson. And Clay, you begin this part of the conversation talking about the, the many journeys that Jefferson took while in Europe. And Baxter talks about how long it took to research his book. And so Jefferson traveled a good deal during the five years that he was in Europe, not only around France, the famous wine tour of 1787. That's the one that most of us know with a little peep into Italy at the same time, what he called a peep into Elysium. But he also traveled to the Low Countries twice uh, to meet with John Adams and with Dutch bankers. He went to England uh, to uh, work with uh, Adams on some model treaties and to to try to wrestle to the ground the problem of the of the the pirates of Tripoli that were preying upon American shipping in the in the Mediterranean. And on one of his journeys, he came back through Western Germany, and so he was all over the map, really. Um, and I I have spent some time in the gardens of England where Jefferson uh, took extensive notes and and really just loved English gardening. He was carrying a, a copy of Thomas Waitley's book on gardening with him and making annotations in it. And so I asked Derek about this. You'll you'll hear his responses. But they traveled. He and his family traveled to all nineteen of the gardens of the famous houses, really, think of uh, Downton Abbey, of the famous houses uh, and gardens that Jefferson loved in in England, which I think is more than any other Jefferson scholar has ever done. I mean, that's that's a full load of Jefferson gardens. Well, let's return to the conversation now, shall we, sir? Indeed, this is a fascinating thing, and I want to go to some more of them next time I'm in England. The number of journeys that Jefferson undertook while he was abroad well, there's the, the trip to England that we're talking about. There's the later trip to Amsterdam to try to get the loans extended and to make sure that before Adams left Europe, that Jefferson understood the exact negotiations that were needed. There's the, the famous trip, the wine trip in 1787, which takes him across the Alps um, and so on. You decided to do all of it. That had to be a that's a big leap. That's I mean, you're taking on expense and time with that, and 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 the English trip is not that well known. Um, the wine trip, of course, is is um, superbly well known. Yeah, it was it was a labor of love. It was kind of a crazy idea. Yes, I took it on. It did it over eight. It took me eight years uh, on and off. Uh, the English trip was kind of a bonus because I was following what he put Jefferson put in his guide hints, but the English trip, he didn't put in hints because the, he was writing it for two young travelers who were just going in the, on the continent, but he talked about gardens in it. And he talked about English gardens being his favorite. It was the only thing, one of the only things English that Jefferson truly loved. So I was thinking about just visiting some English style gardens in Italy and France I was like, no, we should just, we should just go and, and, and do that as a bit of a bonus trip, which which was which was I think a fun decision. For me, there are two huge perplexities in Jefferson's 1787 trip. Number one, that he didn't go on to Rome and Naples and and so on, because we just want him to continue down the spine of Italy. That's number one. And number two, as you point out, um, in perplexity, why didn't he go see the Palladian villas when he was within a day or two of them? Yeah. And I know you have a theory of that, but you must have felt 
oh, come on, let's go to Rome too. <laughs> yeah, it, it must have been frustrating for Jefferson. And, and to give the context in case, in case everyone d- doesn't know, he was ambassador to France. He went to South. He, he, he took leave to go to Aix-en-Provence, ostensibly to, to take the hot waters there because he had broken his wrist. He thought soaking in the waters would help them. Of course, he was, Jefferson got bored after a few days of soaking and, and quit the treatment. Um, it was a bit of a pretext. He had, he had wanted to go to the south of France even before that. And he also thought there could be some public benefit to his trip. He was going to investigate the different seaports in France, like Marseille and Bordeaux, and, and, and investigate you know, how could he help American commerce, which was his job. So he went down there and he was so close. He he was obviously dying to go to Italy. He had grown up reading the classics and the founders uh, and that generation of America uh, just idolized, uh, of American leaders idolized the Romans, like kind of like we do to some extent to the founders today. So he, you know, he read Latin, he he knew the stories, he 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 even named his house after, you know, with an Italian word, he even at one point he was growing vegetables and giving them Italian names. So of course he just, he really wanted to go. He hit on and an a reason to go to, to Northwestern Italy to investigate the kind of rice they had, which was a legitimate reason. And I think related enough to his job uh, as ambassador, he wanted to see if there was a different kind of rice that planters in the Carolinas could plant. So he had the justification to go. He thought he had, all he had to do was to go right over the Alps. It turned out that the rice was grown further to the east. So he had to go all the way to Milan. And he wrote John Jay, his boss in effect, basically the foreign secretary under the Articles of Confederation. It kind of explained what he was doing, but he had already left. So he got to experience Italy for a few weeks. But no, as you say, Clay, he didn't go any further and it must have killed him. I, I suspect he felt that he just couldn't justify time away from his trip, you know, and, and from being in his job, which was to be in France. And once he had gotten the rice, he couldn't also, he didn't have any, he didn't have anything else he had to investigate. So he, I, you could only imagine Thomas Jefferson walking through the Roman forum. Um, and some of the, the travelers that followed hints back in 1788 did and sent him letters and sent him books. And, you know, this was the time of the grand tour when young aristocratic males, for the most part, would go there. And so there was a whole tourism industry set up, guides and and a form of what we see today. So Jefferson would have thrived in that, but he didn't go. And nor did he go, as you say, to, to Vicenza, where Palladio had all those villas. A theory I have, I don't know if it's true or not, but a theory was that he didn't have the same burning need to go see Palladio anymore because he, he was starting to, he was still Palladian, but he was starting to look more to 18th century French neoclassical architecture. That was his real model at that point, as opposed to Palladio's from a couple hundred years earlier. But at the end of the day, I think he just didn't have the time. Uh, so we're just kind of left with a what if. But you know that Jefferson was capable of rationalizing this sort of thing, that if he'd gone to Rome, he would have said, it's essential as we begin our capitals in the country to know what the Romans have done and so on, or that Naples gives us a glimpse into a world that was a Republican. There's no question that Jefferson would have figured out a way to build a narrative around it. And so you sort of have to feel respect for him for taking his job so seriously that he turned back. But remember, one of the key passages in his hints is, you ain't never going to get back. You better go yeah. see it now. Because, you're. I mean, there was no chance Jefferson was going to go to Italy a second time. One of the things that, that led him to southern France was the obsession with canal building in the United States. And as you know, he and Washington could never get it done. The, the Great Potomac Canal that was going to be the 
portal into the interior of the country. He went on that great excursion on the Canal de Midi, uh, which was one of the happiest experiences of his life. And he then justified it by saying he's he's observing the locks. He's looking at the mechanisms. He actually, as you know, even gave advice to the lock keepers about how they could improve some of the mechanics. That's very Jefferson, just showing up at the canal and then, and then yeah, sketching out a better way of, of, of doing the locks. Uh, yeah, he did write those were some of the happiest days of his life. He had his carriage. He had it put on the boat. He had the wheels taken off it. So it was a, a little compartment he could stay in. But then he could just walk along the side of the canal, which is lined with plane trees. And he was just in his element. It was kind of all of the subjects that he enjoyed, he could do there. He could look into the science and technology of the canals. He could listen to the bird song. He was observing what he called the indexes of climate. So he could see, for example, he noticed that I think it was strawberries were, were coming into season on both ends of the canal, but not along the canal. It's an amazing story. And he actually talked them into taking him up to see the works. You know, there's a reservoir that feeds it. And he really found that to be enchanting. It's amazing that Jefferson, he, I mean, he was kind of in the right place at the right time for a lot of these things, but that just that he observed things that others didn't write, that he's remembered in the Canal du Midi, that he's remembered in Bordeaux, because he was one of the earliest to classify the wine there. There's so many different things that he just put his hand into and right, was able to kind of elevate the subject. Let me, let me ask a different kind of question. Yours was a journey story over a number of years. And a journey always has unexpected discoveries and revelations and reflections. And when I'm reading your book, and I reread it this weekend, we come to this moment where you grapple with slavery. And there's a disillusionment. There's a serious disillusionment with Thomas Jefferson that comes at the center of your book. And you give it more attention than it would have received 10 years ago, and certainly more than it would have received 25 years ago. So how do you negotiate as a, as a lover of liberty, as a lover of Jefferson? the disillusionment when you realize how pathetic really his final responses were to slavery? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a good question and, and, and still a tough question, even though I've spent some time thinking about this, because it's not a secret, obviously, that Jefferson was a slave owner. And it, it was a disappointment to me. At first, I thought, well, this is a disappointment, but it's not going to be the focus of my, the main focus of my travels. It's all about the travels in Europe. That's what I wanted to do. So, I, I gave it some attention, but not, to be frank, too much attention. But as I kept learning about these subjects for the travels, from architecture to landscaping to farming, everything kept coming back to slavery and 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 to how he kept having all these dreams. The, the, the part that was inspiring me, like, oh, he 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 invented a plow. He found this new food that we could bring, this new crop to bring back. He developed this new, he's developing a new architectural style, all this stuff that was just making this so enjoyable for me, I finally realized, well, all of this was dependent on the slave labor and all of his travels. I mean, that's that was the moneymaker. It wasn't his salary with the government. It was tobacco. It was his role as a plantation owner. And just learning more and more about it and, and seeing Jefferson as so visionary in so many areas, I did become very disillusioned with him and 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 just knowing knowing that we expect more from him. And yes, of course, we're thinking to some extent about, we're looking you know, in, in, in 2022, looking backwards, and obviously we have different values, but 
some other enlightened planters of the time, white planters had those values and did more. And Jefferson was in the vanguard of just about everything in America in terms of freedom of religion and promoting science and just expanding people's minds to ideas. And he wrote passionately as a younger man about how evil the institution of slavery was yet he never yet he retreated and 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 worse for me because i was focusing on this time of his life when jefferson was in his 40s and in france and this is the time i think that he really retreated and he didn't write about slavery for a variety of reasons and even in his travels he wrote almost to himself a a, a note when he was in nantes which was a a major slaving port in france about the kind of rice that was being sold there for slave ships. It was almost like a note, like, remember, you know, our planters might want to want to sell this kind of rice that would be sent off on the on, on slave ships. So he just knew it was wrong and it became very disillusioning. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt at one point that I'm spending too much time raising Jefferson up, that that everything I'm doing, even if it's somewhat critical of him at times, is it's still it's all coming back to him. And he wouldn't be in this kind of exalted place if it hadn't been for the the 600 people he enslaved over his lifetime. So I, I wound up spending a lot more time trying to do work, learning the stories of some of the enslaved people and not just how they related to Jefferson, but really how people lived on their own right and what are their own stories. And, I want, and finally, I was like, you know, forget about Jefferson on this because I, for a while I was still trying to relate what was the connection of, you know, this enslaved person to Thomas Jefferson. But it really, I just, I wanted to just understand people, their own stories, for their own value. Um, and so I did some works and a little research and and tried to explain some of the stories at Monticello of enslaved people who either left the plantation and found freedom or didn't and just made the best of their lives, you know, however they could. So it's a very painful, it's a painful chapter for sure. And more than a chapter, because it's really the entire part of the entire story of Jefferson's life. But it's one worth that we all, I think as Americans, we all have to grapple with and think about. You say something really important about that um, in the, in that section of the book, which is that if you look at something as spectacular as UVA or something as whimsical and droll as Poplar Forest, you have to always say, but wait a minute, the grounds were laid out at UVA by slaves. The bricks were baked by enslaved people. The timbers were cut by enslaved people. There were even artisans who had special talents who did the steps to the rotunda and so on. That when you earlier, when you were at UVA, I'm guessing you didn't think, look what slaves built. You thought, look what Jefferson gave us. But now our eyes have been opened in a way that we can't ever again close them. And we have to say Jefferson's achievement was unthinkable without slave labor. And it's so hard to get that sentence out of one's mouth. No, you're right, Clay, and you put it very well. And at UVA, I was there in the early 90s, and I, I certainly thought of just Jefferson built UVA, and I'm sure the materials we all read back then talked about Jefferson building, building, uh, he was, you know, he was our founder. Um, there's, there's much more of a reckoning, and I think UVA has done amazing work, and they have this beautiful memorial to enslaved laborers. Now, um, it reminds me a little of the Vietnam veterans memorial in a way it's got the names of, of the, the people that the names that are known and many names that are unknown of enslaved people who worked at both building UVA and, and creating it. But, but yes, everything was done, but Jefferson had the vision and give him credit for that. But it was, the work was all done by enslaved people and by some free whites at times uh, as well, but, but so much done by enslaved people. And 
uh, and it was it was their hard work and they suffered doing it. But not just that. They, as you said, there were artisans involved and, and a lot of the, the touches were done by enslaved people using their own, you know, artistry. So so they are part of the story and they are part they are the builders as well of all of these you know, World Heritage sites. Jefferson didn't get his hands dirty as much as you might think. He was out there, um, but he he wasn't doing the hard work in his in his gardens. He would he would supervise and oversee, and he would measure uh, measure things during construction of buildings. But it was really all these people, hundreds of people that that mostly many enslaved that that put it into practice. You say astonishingly that as late as eighteen one, he admitted that he had never seen tobacco placed into a yeah. tobacco barrel that that blew my mind when i saw that quote um because he what he said i mean it's time to beat up on jefferson a little i mean he said there's not a uh, you know a sprig of, sprig grass, of grass that shoots right. uninteresting to me he said he said he was just interested in the entire world and he is if you look at his travel journals he's writing about everything and this is the one subject that just becomes taboo and that that you know the actual mechanics of of his enslaved people working on tobacco, it just, it, it was, it was beneath him or something. He, he did not get personally engaged in and, and, you know, farming was not his strong suit either. He was not a very successful planter. Um, so yes, that, that kind of comes back as a disappointment. It's a, a disappointment that he missed, uh, a lot of black culture going on at Monticello, um, which he didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't prize. And even, even the music being played. His his younger brother was famous for actually attending, you know, obviously enslaved people were almost always working, but they had some time to their own, mostly at night or on Sundays. They would sometimes have, you know, fires and, and celebrations. And Jefferson's younger brother actually liked the music and hung out and listened to the music. Jefferson, he, he didn't go there. He still had a very Eurocentric view of things and didn't, even though he wrote about the banjo in Notes on State of Virginia, his only book, and this is actually one of the first published references to the banjo in America, uh, you know, he, he didn't explore it further. So another missed opportunity that he really, he really didn't appreciate, I think, the culture, the lives of, of the people that he had enslaved. Just to add quickly to that, not only his brother Randolph, but his daughter Martha was interested in the songs and the orchestras yeah. and so on. And Jefferson made it clear he was not interested, that he, he looked on that as sort of, uh, why would you want to go record any of that? And so there's a disappointment there. Maybe that is a psychological protection of himself in a way that his his brother didn't didn't share. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a one-on-one conversation between Clay Jenkinson and the author Derek Baxter. We need to take a short break, but we'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to this special one-on-one edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, my interview with Derek Baxter, the author of In Pursuit of Jefferson, Traveling Through Europe with the Most Perplexing Founding Father. So Dexter and his family traveled to all these Jeffersonian places, and I've seen some of them, not all of them. In fact, I'm changing the itinerary of this this coming Jefferson tour of France in the fall, thanks to the the hard work that Derek Baxter did in his book. But here's what really perplexed me, you know, the title, Traveling Through Europe with the Most Perplexing Founding Father. And I thought, well, in what sense? Well, it turns out that the issue of slavery and race has overtaken almost all of our conversations about Thomas Jefferson. In a sense, you can't talk about Jefferson anymore without factoring in the the problematic issue of race and slavery. And so he actually uh, gets, I wouldn't say gets stuck on this, but he spends a lot of time wrestling with this. And Jefferson went to Nantes, which was a place in on the coast of France that was a slave trafficking site. And Jefferson is observing the harbors and so on, and he sort of offhandedly mentions slavery, but without any wrestling with the problem of slavery and race. And so that led to a long and very interesting uh, chapter on race in, in this book. So that certainly came up in the interview, and I was fascinated by it. But he also talked about some of the most beautiful. I, I said, tell me about the where you felt most Jeffersonian, where you felt you were in his footsteps. And he talked about uh, these villages that are sort of hanging on the cliffs uh, on the south of France and 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 on the and on the road to Italy, that just uh, Jefferson thought were maybe the most beautiful villages in the world. Let's listen. There must have been a number of times on this journey where you just thought, "Man, I love this guy," or "What a guy!" <laughs> Give us, tell us a little bit about some of the great moments of of just pure joy in traveling in his footsteps. I love just some of the places, first of all, that he 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 found on his trip. He loved this town of Seorge in France, which is tiny. It's in the Alps. And we spent a couple of nights there and it was almost magical. And he 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 described it in such beautiful terms. We just thought, I've got to go to I have to see Seorge. It's like on a it's almost on a cliff top. Everything's built out of stone and the houses extend for several stories. And, and you know, the houses are from the Middle Ages. So you have one family living on a bottom floor that exits here and then further up on the cliff, another family exits here. And we, we stayed there, we, we hiked, we went into this clear mountain stream and swam around. It was, the water was almost it hurt. It was cold, even though it was in, in summer. Um, and Jeffers des- described all this and he described just the beauty of the place. He described, he had, he, he also, of course, being Jefferson, he was being very practical. He was really into the olive tree and he thought this was, he wanted the olive tree to be brought back. And he thought that this could help poor farmers so that it didn't require much water. It could produce olive oil. So he just thought this was going to be a wonderful new find for America. So as he's traveling through the Alps to Seorge, he's charting um, the elevation. Okay, the olive tree can survive up until this height. So we were walking around and looking very unscientifically for olive trees. So that was a moment where I was just so happy to be on the trip and, and to be inspired by this Renaissance man who was just into everything. So so that was that was just an amazing moment. Being in Amsterdam was another cool 
moment. I'd never been there. I'd been to some of these places in France before in Italy, but I'd never been to Amsterdam. And again, Jefferson was just at the top of his game, uh, I think, as a traveler in Amsterdam. He was walking through the streets. He heard a church bell playing some music and, and, and he just and he wrote down the notes, the musical notes. He was observing the canal bridges and the little innovations that Dutch had and trying food and buying things. So that that experience, my wife and I went for a festival there. And just that experience was, again, just, you know, it was another bucket list experience that I wouldn't have had. Um, it's so many, I could just go on and on. Going back to Provence was very meaningful. I had studied there my junior year abroad and with my mother, I, we had gone up into the Luberon back then and gone to this little restaurant. We came back 20 years later and the owner was still there. He even said, I remember you after I told him we had been there, which which, wow. which I find a little hard to believe. Nice thing to say, no matter what. Exactly. But it, it, we didn't care. The, the food was amazing. It's, it, and, and this time I'm here 20 years, 25 years, I think, later with my mother again. And this time with my with the kids. So they're experiencing something. I think going into these vineyards, that's such a direct connection to the past because these are literally the same vineyards, you know, and vine, vines don't live 200 years, but they can live a long time. So we're seeing, like, um, and Jefferson rated these wines. So going to, going to try some of those wines and develop my own palate because I knew nothing about wine tasting. I, I thought it was kind of pretentious and I fell in love with, fell in love with it. And, and just, you know, that was, that was also just such a fascinating experience. So, so, so many, um, that I that I give credit to him for kind of pushing us to go out there and 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 do all these trips. So in Paris, you go to the Palais Royal, you go to the Jefferson sites, his house, his hotels, the, and and of course the statue of Jefferson mm -hmm. looking off at the Hotel de Somme. What's your favorite Paris place for Jefferson? Well, we loved we loved the Marais district. I don't I don't know that I'm not, I don't necessarily know if that was Jefferson's favorite district, but we loved walking through there and. Uh, we actually stayed in a B&B or kind of an inn run by, well, it's, 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 it's the house of where Beaumarchais, the, the, the playwright uh, who Jefferson was a fan of and who helped the American Revolution uh, cause quite a bit. Anyway, we stayed in that, which was kind of decked out in, the, in 18th century period furnishings. So that, that was amazing. We're going there and dining in the Grand Vefour, that has to be the place. That's a splurge. That's a once in a lifetime meal. This is a restaurant that in the Palais Royal. So the Palais Royal was kind of the pleasure district, as you know, in, in Paris at that time. That was the place to be. And Jefferson loved it. He went there a lot. And this is a restaurant that's that, you know, this hosted Napoleon and Victor Hugo and just many, you know, the who's who throughout time. So anyway, going there with my wife and, and having this amazing meal and even talking to the waiters a little bit afterwards, which I don't think is normally done in fancy, you know, Michelin star restaurants, you know, it's all very super formal and white linen and all, but we even managed to chat with, with the waiter a bit at the end. I just thought that was, that was an experience that Jefferson absolutely would have eaten up and probably had a very similar experience. And after that, we we walked, we, we went out, we walked from the Palais Royal up to the Champs-Élysées where his, his house was and kind of looked at some of the sites along the way. And, and being Jefferson, of course, he actually counted, you know, he counted how many steps it took him to get around in Paris. So I was even trying to count to see if my steps would match. Of course, there had been some wine involved at this restaurant. So I think, I think my numbers were kind of off, but um, 
you could just, uh, Jefferson just ate Paris up. I, I mean, he, he just, you know, what a place for him. It was definitely a place that once he got used to it, because he got off to a rocky start, once he got used to it, it was just definitely the place for him to be, but also a place eventually for him to leave, because I think he, throughout, he wanted to come back to America, and he was just so proud of this new nation, this new republic, that he wanted to come back eventually with all this. He always knew he'd come back, and he would he would help, you know, build America up. So many more questions I'd like to ask you. So. I just want to note when you finished that meal, you handed the bill to your wife. <laughs> couldn't bear to look at the cost. <laughs> no, no. I think she started to tell me later, and I was absolutely shocked. I still am. Um, uh, I mean, you know, it's it all comes back to the same place, but uh, it was quite a bit. But I think if if there's any lesson from Jefferson, uh, you know, it's if you know if if you're near something you know it's, it's a, if it's a once in a lifetime experience you should try to do it if you can um and so the other restaurant that is in the Palais Royal that I take people to is the uh, Mecanique where the ah. ventilators were ah, okay gone. yeah but the, we know the site of it and, yeah. and it's actually um I think that's where he first fell in love with the dumbwaiter and it used to be a, a restaurant long after his time ah I would have loved to have gone there and there's the Procope and uh there's just yeah there's there's uh there's so many, and you know, most restaurants. I mean, it's, it's rare for a restaurant to be in business for hundreds and hundreds of years, but all the build. I mean, so many of these buildings are old. So even if the restaurant itself is not that old, I mean, just all the architecture is. Um, so you can get glimpses of of Jefferson's time in Paris. You know, if you know where to look. So about the journals, you know, when when everyone who reads Jefferson's travel journals winds up being disappointed because he doesn't reflect on the on the purpose of life or um, his own religious views or how much he hates Hamilton, et cetera. It's very factual, the number of trellises for a vineyard and uh, how many fish they put in for fertilizer and so on. And yet there is this sort of other wonderful quality to the journals because he's always asking about the people. Are they happy? Do these people look happy? And mm -hmm. he would measure different places in France and said, here are the women um, put little um, uh, ornaments to show that they still are feminine. And, and here the women look like they're being borne down by too much labor. And, you know, and then he writes that famous letter to Lafayette saying, you got to get out there and you got to say you're, you're tired. So they, they put you in their bed so you can see if they're soft. And there's this whole kind of beautiful side to Jefferson saying the purpose of life is happiness. And, and he wanted to, he wanted to measure that. And what he saw really depressed him. And it led him to write those famous letters to Madison saying, got to tear up the Constitution every 19 years and we got to cancel debts. And so he gets home in November of 1789 after this five-year sojourn in Europe and two things happen. The ship starts on fire in the harbor and his 80-some crates of stuff are in danger of being burned up. Luckily, the fire is put out and uh, he discovers on shore that he's been made the Secretary of State. It was quite a homecoming. Yes, his his ship almost burned up, and I and I can only imagine what was going through his head, especially because he was had all these great dreams for America, and he had just been in the capital of the world, in effect, Paris, and now he's back. He's in Tidewater, Virginia. He's actually he landed at a place very close to where I think uh, a woman had been tried for witchcraft a hundred years earlier. So all of a sudden he's there, and now you know his ship is on fire. So you must, you might. I wonder if he was thinking, what have I got myself back into? And then he gets this job, which seems like 
a pro, it was a promotion, but it wasn't really what he wanted at that time. And he didn't really understand what the secretary of state was, what the position was going to be. So he probably had a lot of mixed views and uh, mixed emotions when he first landed. But that was the end of his, of his European adventure. He never made it back. He did some some other travels, his, his longest trip was the 1791 trip to New England with James Madison, which is also very interesting. But that was it as a traveler. But, I, but he came back with a love of travel. And he certainly, more than any other president, you know, he kept buying maps and books on travels. And he obviously commissioned Lewis and Clark, which is, you know, which gets back to your expertise, Clay. But uh, the, all of that, I think, was in the Louisiana Purchase, all of this a lot of the genesis of these ideas comes from his time in Europe. So he continued to travel, I think, even if he wasn't physically going on the trips himself. And just the two psychological um, possibilities for our next conversation. I, I agreed with you entirely that Captain Ramsey, wanting to bring Sally Hemings back to the United States, creeps me out in every possible way. Um, and I think Abigail Adams saw through that and made sure that she was safe. But sexual predation, um, we you know we have to wonder about that with Jefferson, but I think Ramsey's ideas were probably corrupt. And then when Jefferson gets back, within two months, his daughter Martha is married to her cousin. There's, there's a lot going on there that we don't know. And so there's lots about Jefferson's inner soul and workings and heart and, and consciousness and id and blindnesses that we simply don't know. Yes, so much of it is hidden because he wouldn't put it on paper. And the there's hardly any references to the Hemingses in his in his personal letters. So, you know, there's a suspicion that they might have been burned uh, or, um, you know, changed, you know, omitted later. Um, Annette Gordon-Reed, uh, you know, the groundbreaking professor at Harvard, you know, she's 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 talked about this quite a bit. And, and, and you're right. Both of those instances are just we get glimpses and we don't fully know what was going on. The first one being, as you mentioned, with Sally, Captain Ramsey brought Sally Hemings. I think she was 15 to, to be the the enslaved servant of Jefferson's daughter. They get to London and they're going to send Polly over to Paris. And Captain Ramsey very eagerly says, well, I'll bring I'll bring this this young girl back with me. So that seemed inappropriate, to say the least. This this unmarried ship captain was going to bring this enslaved girl back unsupervised. Beautiful, Beautiful. young girl. Yes. And, and then and then Jefferson's daughter, Martha, married very quickly, as you point out, just a couple of months after after uh, she returned to Paris to to Thomas Van Randolph, who, who she had seen as a child and had not seen very much. And there's the, the, the question, is this a psychological reaction to uh, to her father, uh, her father and Sally Hemings? You know, we don't know. There's so much that's not known. It's certainly a possibility. Um, certainly a lot of the emotions are going on just under the surface so that we can't fully know today. But um Jefferson wrote so much on everything and and, it's, and and saved so much. He was always writing for history and his family knew he, they knew he was the he he was he was the guy and that people will be looking at these letters for centuries as they have. So he is our best source on so many things including on the lives of the enslaved people. I mean he's the best source of 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 what uh What's what what the the material life was like for enslaved people at a plantation in the 18th century and early 19th? So so it's, he's just he's got the data, but but kind of the why is still kind of under the surface sometimes um, in the emotion. 
So you kind of, you try to understand things at a human level the best you can, but then we're, we're, we're left guessing sometimes. Derek, thank you for all of this time. I certainly appreciate it. Congratulations on this book. I hope it does very, very well. Well, thank you, Kelly. Thanks. And thanks for all your work. You've certainly been an inspiration as well. Appreciate it. See you another time. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Clay, thank you so much for sharing these conversations with myself and our, all of our listeners. I, I am enjoying very much listening to them. I look forward to more of them. Almost everyone we asked to, to interview now for the Jefferson Hour is willing to do it, thanks largely to the, the new technologies that have emerged or at least been highlighted since the pandemic took over our lives. And I know you've got a couple of gigantic projects more in line with your traditional work that are keeping you from some of these interviews. I always miss you on them, but I'm glad that we get a chance to talk about them before we air them. Yes. Uh, I, it, it, one project in particular is something I've been wanting to do for decades that uh, is, is uh, just a joy to be working on. I'm, I'm very excited about it. This involves Native American sound from the turn of the 20th century. Be careful or we'll end up talking for a long time. But if people are interested, um, uh, we have just uh, what's called a splash page, the beginning of a permanent website. It's Lakota Songs, all one word, dot com. And if you go there, there's a, a video and some information about what we're up to. And it's, it's very exciting. We'll be doing an interview with you about that project here shortly, but it's fascinating. And it's about the kind of work that you've been at now for, oh, I suppose more than 30 years, but listening with deep respect and humility to Native American voice. And I, I know of no one who could do a better job of this than you, and I congratulate you on it. Well, thank you for that. But really, uh, the subject we should be discussing is this week's interview with Derek Baxter. It was, it was you know, I got to read this guy's book after listening to him. He sounds like just a, a very fine and fun fellow. Thanks so much for sharing this interview, Clay, and uh, look forward to more in the weeks to come. Derek Baxter, in pursuit of Jefferson, traveling through Europe, with the most perplexing founding father. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number no. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson.